being late, it's all John's fault. So, oh, sorry, sorry. But um, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to just uh, pray, and then we can make some introductory comments. And it's great to see. It's been three years, right, Janet? Three years. We must have really offended a lot of people. Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity to be together and around the Word of God. And I have to confess to you, Father, that it is uh, of divine necessity that the Spirit of God would need to be here present to teach us. He has the responsibility of the teaching ministry to the body of Jesus Christ. And far be it from you not to let that ministry be fulfilled through your servants this evening. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So, good to see you all, and I wanted to specifically uh, let you know that um, uh, my assembly, my elders, were praying about this conference this weekend, and so it's great to be here for that reason alone. The second thing is, um, Janet and I have had uh, quite a few changes that happened in our lives in the last year, and one of the big changes is um, I, I, uh, I left my full-time position in medicine, and uh, we're attempting to serve the Lord with every ounce of time we have. Uh, I still work uh, once in a while. In fact, I worked last night, which has explained why I didn't shave. And uh, I think I got about two and a half hours of sleep last night. So if I say turn to Genesis and I'm in John, just overlook that. Uh, but, uh, but that's uh, been the story of our lives here in the last several months. And... Um, I still work to keep my license current as we do some service for the believers for that, uh, with that particular skill set. So things have been different, and um, it's been a change, and we, we had uh, so many things happen to get us to this point, and um, we're, we're very grateful to the Lord. Now, one of the things that um, has uh, been most on our minds lately is this whole concept of worship, right? Worship. And, uh, and one of the things that, that we'll notice or we'll observe, whether you observe them or I observe them, is this whole um, matter of, uh, of what, what really constitutes worship. Um, one of the things that, that I think we'll see is we'll, we'll hear people say, and maybe you've said it here, I don't know, i just just speaking out uh, as an example, we'll hear people say, well... Um, we gathered to worship through our worship team. Have you ever heard that? Our worship team. Now, um, actually, I, I can't find worship teams in the Bible. There's some interesting things about singers in the Old Testament. But truthfully, what is that? Is that really worship? And usually what we, when we say worship team or worship itself, we actually mean really, really, really inspiring singing. Now, I would tell you that's not wrong. It's not wrong at all. But is that what God means by worship? That's a pretty important decision, or a pretty important thing to ask and to have a conclusion. Um, I, I asked this question because it was asked of me. And I have to confess to you, I went, and you know, I don't know if you know this, but we in these things called the assemblies, this is supposed to be our thing. Right? We're supposed to, be, we're supposed to know about this. Right? We got a guy who wrote a book on it. Right? It's a good book. A.P. Gibbs' book on worship. Several others out there, too. I'll mention them this evening. But the point is, is that we, we probably need to have a fresh, and, uh, a fresh look at this. We probably need to have some fresh consideration. So 
What I'd like to do this evening is I'd like to look in the Old Testament. And, and I'm going to use a story from Genesis chapter 22 to, to illustrate our concepts of worship this evening. But what I want to do is I want to just begin to define it in the Old Hebrew, right? That's a good place to discuss, to, to begin, and then talk about this thing that Abraham did in Genesis 22 and make some conclusions. And so don't worry, you'll still get the pie this evening. It'll just be later. No, I'm kidding. All right. So, if you would turn in your Bibles uh, to Genesis, I believe it's chapter 18 is where we're going to go. These are just some, suge- uh, some questions I had mentioned or wanted to ask. Is, is worship a, a, a good breaking of bread meeting? Ask yourself that question. When we say worship in our circles, do we mean that we're just really having a vibrant breaking of bread meeting? Is that worship? And the answer would be actually different than what you'd think. Uh, breaking a bread meeting is a meeting where we remember, right? We remember. The, the word worship is not actually included in the texts in the New Testament of, of, of worship. It's uh, of breaking a bread. They're, they're not together. But what happens is, and you'll notice this phenomenon to be quite active, that as we remember, there is only really one appropriate response, and that is to declare the worth of God in it. A vibrant remembrance meeting. Uh, can we worship alone? Have you ever done that? Ask yourself. Were you and the Lord, you're, you're, you, were, you were together, you had moments of, of uh, prayer and, and reading His Word, the Spirit of God was ministering to your heart as He always does, and all of a sudden you say, you know, God, I just, I just, want to, I just like to worship you. Do you ever have that? It, can it be done alone or does it always have to be together? What about worship? And we'll hopefully we'll answer some of these things. Is there anything we should or should not do in worship? In other words, were there any Old Testament examples where worship in terms of service was being done and it was not acceptable to God? That's a big question. Because if that question is yes, then we better, we better ask ourselves, well, what about our worship? Are we doing anything that would be unacceptable to God? Let me ask you, so, you know, the children here. Do you ever, do you ever do something for your a teacher, and 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 you get the assignment, and you get it all done, and you work on it hours, and you're up late at night, at least till eight o'clock, and 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 you're you're just you finally you turn it in, and she goes, oh, or he goes, oh, that's wonderful, you did the wrong one, right? Do you ever have that happen to you? No, happened to me. You know what I got? Boy, that was tough. I thought I did it perfect. And it would have been perfect if I'd have read the right chapter. I read the wrong chapter, right? It kind of helps to, to know what you're into. And lastly, is God pleased with your personal worship or your corporate worship? Or are we just fooling ourselves? Are we fooling ourselves? That's a terrible thing. All right. Now, what is worship in the Old Testament? I'm going to try to illustrate some of this, but let me just begin by a few facts and figures. Why a few facts and figures? Because I'm that kind of guy. All right. Worship begins uh, used. This is the Hebrew uh, lemma, so that's the dictionary form for worship. It's used 170 times in the Old Testament. And the words, the root word means to depress, or it means to bow down, prostrate oneself. Do you know what that means? Okay, let me show you what that means. I just, I just watch closely. You'll never see this happen again. All right. This is what prostrate is. Okay. Like this. You might want to stand up. Okay. And here we go. Like this. All the way flat on the ground. Like this. Oh, it's kind of comfortable actually. Okay. Now, I do that so that you'll understand that 
there, there is a certain kind of um, message that's being communicated. And what is that message? The message is very simple. The message is that by bowing low, you are doing two things. The first thing you're doing is that you, in the presence of someone else, are lowering yourself. Now, when you, if this person stays the same physically, say at 6 feet, 10 feet level, and you get down to the ground at 0 feet level, what's happened here? They, although they didn't move, are actually elevated higher than you because you've made the distance between them and you greater, right? So they're, they're standing at this level, and you're at this level with them, and you lower yourself. In essence, what happens is they've been elevated, but they haven't moved yet. See, that, that's a very important part. And that's this idea in the Old Testament. Now, Genesis chapter 18 really, really gets this here. Uh, uh, there's a Genesis passage in Genesis 18, but uh, uh, let's just read that for a second here. Hmm. Yes. Genesis chapter 18 is uh, where Abraham is going to meet with some angelic hosts, one of them being the pre-incarnate Christ. And when he sees them coming, he has a certain physical posture or a response. So look at this. Then the Lord appeared. Are you at Genesis chapter 18, verse 1? Ready? Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. And he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. That sounds kind of nasty to me already. Right? You ever been to Israel over there at this time? Oh, it's nasty. It's hot as hot, right? So he's in the heat of the day. I can just see himself fanning. A little bit more on that motion there, Isaac, you know. All right. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. Notice the movement that he had towards them just by their presence. In other words, they're a distance away. He could see them. He got up and he went. And what did he do? He went to greet them. And notice what he did when he, when he got right in front of them and bowed himself to the ground. You see that word bowed? That's the word worship. That's the same word worship. In other words, he is lowering himself. In fact, many times in the Old Testament, when you see the word bow or you see the word lower, it's actually the same word worship, translated worship in, the, in for example, Genesis chapter 22. But it's not just physical body posture. As we will discover tonight in Genesis chapter 22, there's way more than just simply uh, 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 lowering yourself low. There's a whole heart attitude involved. There's a whole, uh, there's a whole uh, movement of soul involved. That's what's key. Can I tell you a little story? It's about my, of course I'm going to tell you the story. You're not going to say no. But it's about my youngest. Her name is Gracie. Have you heard of her? I have all Gracie stories now. You'll have all Karen stories. So Gracie, she's about this big. She called us tonight on, on FaceTime. And she's like six going on 16. Well, I only have 18%, but I've got to go now, you know. Anyway, one day I, I was working kind of uh, back before I had left medicine. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. This was recent. I had been traveling. I've been traveling a fair amount, and I, and I had gotten home from uh, several weeks of travel, kind of back to back. And she was so happy to see me. She ran up, grabbed my legs, you know, one arm around each leg, and she's just shaking me. And she's got, I'm picking her up. She's just kissing, kissing, kissing. We have this game, you know, is it time for your thousand kisses? And so she's just kissing me and, and every, I couldn't take but two steps and she's on this leg and then on that leg. And, and, and I said, Gracie, is it okay if I sit down to eat? 
She goes, oh, yes, yes. So she, I sit down to eat. She runs around the table and runs over to our couch. And literally, she gets on the couch, puts herself on the pillow, and she does, forgive me, she goes like this. Just like that, looking right at me. And then she says the following words. I'm just going to look at you. I know. <laughs> You'll get all the inheritance, sweetheart. All of it. Right? Now, that, that, that was very moving. But you know what she was saying? I just want, and believe it or not, that was her form of worship to me. Well, that's great for my ego. My wife said, don't get used to that. But that's the idea. It's more than just sort of bowing low. There's a real movement of soul involved. And that's what you'll find this evening in our study over the weekend. So there's a couple of other usages. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1 is one of them. But I tell you, the, the one that really that really speaks to us here is Genesis chapter 22. Um, there is a couple of places as we get into it, a couple of places where worship, or there's a patterns of worship. And usually when you find uh, altars being built, there are, it's really a reference to a pattern of, of, of giving God his rightful due, lowering myself so that he is elevated. And, and uh, it's, uh, it usually involves some sacrifice. And so you find that very early on with Noah's life. And you can see in chapter 8, verse 20, the very first thing he did after the flood was what? He had a hamburger because he only ate fish. No, that's not it. What he did was he built an altar and offered the sacrifices there, and that was an act of worship. And remember, God was pleased with that. Abraham, look at the amount of times that he's building altars in the Old Testament. In Genesis 12, uh, when he first went to the land of Canaan, then he moved a little further south, then he moved again, or he came back from Egypt, and then there was another event, and then of course. Genesis chapter 22, where we talk about another altar event. Notice, and Isaac picked up the same, the same kind of thinking, and he builds altars to God. Again, worshipful patterns. Jacob, he's building altars. So we've got uh, first generation, second, third generation, so we're into the grandson level, right? And then notice in the, in the, in the commandments of God, this is now in Moses there, some 400 plus years later. Let's read that together. Exodus chapter 12. Notice the emphasis upon this whole idea of worship. All right? I'm just going to read the first four commandments. Uh, excuse me. I said, 20, I said 12. I meant 20. That's one of those sleep-deprived mistakes. All right, you ready? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You have no other gods before me. Now, recognize what God's doing. He's taking a group of people who've never had social order, never had their own religious order, and he's got the responsibility of giving them their own identity in a matter of, of a short period of time, really, when they spent their time on Mount Sinai. And so that's why he's writing and codifying all this kind of the do's and the don'ts, because up to this point, there was only Egyptian manners that they knew. And so here they are now, once and for all, they come away. God gives them this decalogue. It's written by the finger of God on the granite, you know. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make 
uh, for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth below or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow. <gasps> is that? No. Yeah, it is. Same word. Say, so you shall not worship. You shall not worship down to them nor serve them. Notice the word serve and worship used in the same sentence. You see, worship is actually a big priority with God. In the Old Testament, patriarchs demonstrated that. We finally get to a point where God can, can uh, 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 engrave his thoughts about worship and, and the priority is within the first one and two commandments that, that worship is a big deal. That, that expressing this sort of uh, um, elevation of God by lowering myself with a heart that's stirred. That's a very important deal. Now, Genesis 22 is where we really get the lessons here. So let's turn there. Genesis 22. And we'll spend the rest of our time here. Okay, so Genesis 22. If you're not familiar with it, it's one of the classic portions of God's Word that deals with some tremendous themes. And um, to paint the picture, I just want to to uh, tell you a couple of things. Uh, by this time, Isaac is probably somewhere around 20, maybe 25 years of age. That means Abraham was probably around somewhere around 120 to 125 years of age. You, may, you base that on the fact that he calls him a lad. The lad and I will go far further and will return, will worship and return to you. And that word in Hebrew, lad, really is not like a boy of a school age. It really is like a teenager or above. And so, uh, so we can make that assumption. In other words, he had his own uh, six-pack and his own uh, you know, gun show. He was a pretty stout kid, right? Now, the second, thing you want to know, uh, the second thing you want to notice is not only the age of Abraham, the age of Isaac, but you'll want to notice that there is a, a unique way the Spirit of God unfolds this account. In order for, for me to do it justice, I want you to think about it from this way. When, we, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it's somewhat hard to get an idea of what was he feeling, right? What did he, what, what, what's going on inside? Well, Psalm 22, several Psalms really help us here. And, and, the, and the psalmist, he says, um, I am a worm and no man. He's really talking about how, how he feels about himself. He says, uh, I, uh, I, 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 am, I, I am surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, which are pretty gruesome creatures, and, uh, and, he, and, and dogs have surrounded me. And this is the Lord Jesus. Is, is some think he quoted this psalm on the cross. And, and so the, the whole point is that there's a real uh, peering in a little sneak peek, as it were, at the heart of the Savior and suffering for our sins. All my bones are out of joint. They can count my ribs. You hear that stuff? I'm a worm and no man. I'm the worthless of all life. And by the way, it's really interesting in that psalm. The word worm is the very word used for the creature that was crushed and its dye was used to make garments for the royalty. It's very picturesque. Christ died for our sins and gave us robes of righteousness. But that's a little peering into the heart of a Savior. Genesis 22 is one of the few times where you peer into the heart of the Father. All right, That's the key, the heart of the Father. And the way you come to this conclusion is you'll look at it and you'll see how many times uh, Abraham is really sort of featured. I mean, Isaac is there, but Abraham's doing everything. 
Abraham's getting up in the morning. Abraham was talked to by God. Abraham answered the hard questions. Abraham had the knife. You get the idea that God is using these these, these men like they're uh, uh, paints on a palette of eternity, and God is painting these beautiful pictures with their life, and, and he's allowing us to be children, to come to the windowsill of heaven, and we'll get on our tippy toes, and we'll look in, and we'll see, if I could say this very, very respectfully, the bleeding heart of God, God the Father. Now, bear with me. Let's look at it from that perspective and then the worship perspective. Okay, here we go. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And notice, here am I will be used multiple times in the text. Once here, once with Isaac, and once again at the ordeal when the knife was in the air. It's always consistent out of Abraham's mouth, as if to say... I am here to obey. Okay, now notice that. Okay, next thing. Then he, he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Now, I'm going to go through the text and then we'll go back to the slides, but look, look, at, look at what he's doing. Notice the uncanny details of how they're similar between Abraham the father and God the father. Notice that. Here, he says, take now your son. Your son? Well, doesn't that's like God. He's God the father, God the son. Okay. The, your only son, Isaac. In other words, this unique son of purpose. You've got that kind of lad. So do I, if I may. God, God the father, God the son. We identify, we're showing the parallels between both scenarios. Whom you love. Well, that's God the Father. He loves us. That says in the New Testament, John, John 6.35, John 5.30. The Father loves the Son. Wow, notice that's three. And we're just a sentence in. I think God is setting up the parallel, the comparison between the two. Now, why does he do that? Because in the commandment, he says, now you take that boy of yours, who you love, that one, your only son, as far as you're concerned, you take him and you go to this place and you offer him as a burnt offering on, on the Mount of Moriah, which God would know would eventually be the place where there would be the temple, where the sacrifices were done, and eventually would be the place where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be crucified. So he's saying the same kind of parallels that I'm telling you to do are exactly paralleling what I will do. Your parameters are my parameters. Your sacrifice is my sacrifice. And what is he saying by that? Abraham, every human being, can understand the agony that is there when, you when I tell you to sacrifice your own son. Every human being knows that. And if you can identify with that, then you should know that the same agony that would be between a father and a son with that kind of command, that startling, really unusual command, is the exact same agony that would be within the Godhead. Do you see that? You get, you're, we're children, and we get to put our eye over the windowsill, and suddenly we get to see that there's a tremendous revelation of the heart of the Father here. Now notice what it says next. Verse 3. I take it in two, two verse segments. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, 
And he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering. And he rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Okay, we've got to look at this. This is big. These last three or two verses I read. Notice who's doing all the work. Notice it, right? Abraham rose up. How old was Abraham? 125. My dad's almost 80. He doesn't get up early. All right? It goes like this. Abraham rose up early. And who saddled the donkey? Abraham did that. What else happened? Abraham split the wood. It says he. That's Abraham. Split the wood for the burnt offering. Can you imagine a 125-year-old fellow out there with an axe? Whoa! You know? My point is, Abraham at this point, it was just a few chapters ago, he took 300 men who were the choice men born in his house who went to do a night assault on the kings that had actually taken Lot prisoner. It wasn't just a few chapters ago. Think about it. 318 men born in his house. If you make the assumption that there's one per family and there's two parents per family, you're somewhere around 1,000 people. Now, that's the choice men. What about all their siblings? Well, probably got 2,000 people if their family's like ours. Right? Now, so... Abraham's got this huge, tiny village. He does not need to split the wood. He's got people to split the wood. He's got people to saddle the donkey. He's got all kinds of servants around. Men he can take to war, for goodness sake. But he takes this upon himself to personally attend to every detail of the morning. Takes his time to waken his son. Takes his time to gather the supplies, the fire and the wood and, and the knife. He takes his, his own energies to do this. And, and, and notice it says that on the third day, he looked off and he saw the hill. Okay, so at this time of writing, Abraham lived in a place called Beersheba. You know where that's at? It's right down here by my belly button. Don't look too hard. Now, in the land of Canaan, over here is the Mediterranean Sea. All right, this is the River Jordan over here going up to my left pocket there. And over here at my belly button, that kind of tickles. But anyway, down here in Bathsheba, you could you would take you a, a 12 hours a day riding a camel at a gallop to get up to the land of Mount Moriah, which is by Jerusalem. In other words, what? He didn't waste any time. He got there as quickly as possible. Notice this about God. God would be the one who would be involved in, in all the details himself. God the Father. He, he was involved in, in the sustaining of all of life, of growing the vegetation, of growing the trees, of growing everything that would, that would eventually one day hold the head and the body of the Savior. It was the Father who, if I may say it in this poetic way, awakened the Son, aroused Him to uh, move into human flesh and bone. And it was the Father who took responsibility that day when the judgment of God would come. You see the parallels again. We're little children. We're getting to see into the, uh, into the, to the workings of heaven. And we're seeing how God takes full responsibility. And almost like He's rushing to that moment of history because it says it in the Bible this way, and the fullness of time would come. Isn't that beautiful? That's just beautiful. How my Father would take all these things so seriously, so personally. Not waste any time. I'd be wasting my time every time I could get a chance. Well, let's kind of stop here tonight here, little Isaac. 
we never know when we may come back this way. Let's just take a little time. Let's watch the stars. You know, that's what I would have done. I would have just, just goofed off, procrastinated left and right. But Abraham did not. Now, notice what else happened. So Abraham took the word, this is verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Boy, doesn't that sound something else? Took the wood and put it on his back. Doesn't that sound like anything you heard of, like a guy carrying a cross? Well, I'm just saying, it sounds very familiar. Laid it on Isaac, his son, took the fire in his hand, that's the idea of judgment, and the knife, and the two of them went together. Notice this term, went together, is repetitively in the text. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, here am I, my son, here am I. In other words, that willing, obedient, faith, voice of faith. My father, if I may, I've been thinking. We have here the fire. We have here the wood. But aren't we missing something? Aren't we missing something? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? What if, you, what if that was your son, your child? And they said to you, Dad, Mom, are we missing something? We're, 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 what, don't we need a sacrifice? And the answer is the guy asking the question. Wouldn't that just rip your heart out? I was working uh, one day in the ER several years ago. A guy came in, and his little son had fallen and gotten a cut on the chin. They always cut the chin. Why do they cut the chin? Because they're always going hit the floor like this. And so he had this little cut here, and he's, you know... He's going, okay, put your hands down. No, you know, and finally I get a look at him thinking it needs stitches. Now, let me tell you something. Whenever they need stitches, you never use the word stitches. It sounds like a curse word to them. So you always say, I think we'll need to repair with some sutures. Go around. Don't tell them it's actually going to be stitches. And then the little boy sits there and he turns around to his father. And this dad, he was, he was built. His arms were the size of my legs and He's like a super-duper weightlifter, and I mean, you know, the neck and the head were one dimension. I mean, he looked huge, you know. And, and the little boy says, Daddy, is it, it going to hurt? And this behemoth, strong man that could lift trains in a single motion was a pile of mush on my bed in the ER. Is it going to Couldn't understand a word he said. You see, that's a little illustration of how painful it would be to answer the question, is it going to hurt? We're talking about a little cut. How much more would have been so agonizing for uh, the, the son, Isaac, to turn to dad, dad, we've been this down this road many times. We've worshipped before. And I see we got the fire and the wood and everything. Where's the lamb? Are we forgetting the lamb? And you know the answer, son, you're the lamb. Now listen, hear me out. Could not that question have equally been asked between God the Father and God the Son in glory? I, I can't prove it. I just wonder in my head, did that question sort of reverberate through the, the, the space and time and, and reverberate and echo through the corridors of heaven and come to the throne room where the question could easily be heard and asked there, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Just like Isaac would have asked. And the answer is, it's the Son of God. And if you think that is not agonizing for that little father to give that answer to that little boy with a cut on his chin, or Abraham to give that answer to Isaac, then you don't know what it's about. Because I bet, I, I would say it was equally as agonizing, if not more, for the father and the son to know the answer. Don't you think? Oh, I think so. 
This is the setting that is going to describe worship. Now, of course, Abraham, oh, love him to death. He says this, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Huh? Uh, what is it? C.H. McIntosh says, God would, spare Ab- God would spare Abraham a pain. He would not spare himself. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to protect you, Abraham, from this agony, but I'm not going to protect me from this agony. It'll be agonizing for me. Like no one would know. But now we get this picture, right? Also, I wanted you to notice in verse 5, did you see how it says, stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship? That's just the word we're talking about, bowing down. But in this case, we'll see that there are many other things involved. There's love, the love of the, what, what you're going to sacrifice. There's sacrifice involved. There's all these things that, that I, I'm going to review in just a minute. But what I wanted you to see was not the idea of the word worship yet. We're going to f- come back to focus on that. But notice his comments. The lad and I will go and we'll come back. Now I want to ask you a question. How developed was the, was the doctrine of, of resurrection at this point in biblical history? Uh, not too much. If we believe that Job was around the same time as Abraham, Job has two, maybe three references that might refer to resurrection. But ask yourself, how much of the Word of God they actually had written down? Uh, nothing. And how much would he have known about God raising it? Nothing. In other words, it had to, it, Abraham was at this crossroads and God had promised that Isaac would be this boy that would rise up through his generations and posterity to see the entire nation grow and as many as the stars of the sky and in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then God tells him, now you take that lad there and you make him a sacrifice. That means you're going to kill him. So you think about God. Either God's either off his rocker, losing it, telling you to do human sacrifice, or you maintain your perspective of the good heart of God, whether he makes a promise in this boy, which was miraculous because Abraham was a hundred, and, and you maintain that same philosophy of God's pristine and reliable character when something happens that doesn't make sense. That's called faith, isn't it? And I tell you, I'm living this all the time. And usually the time when it doesn't make sense, I'm going, oh, sure about this, oh God. We had this happen today. Janet said, you know, you made those reservations to California to the wrong city. Oh, God. I'm in there wallowing. Children of Israel did this all the time. They whined and complained because although God had the evidence of his reliability and keeping his promises, what happened was that in this trial of the moment, they refused to continue their faith in God. Abraham didn't do this. In fact, Hebrews tells us that when he was told to, to put him to, to make him a sacrifice, Abraham actually believed God to the point where he said, all right, God's promised this through Isaac, but yet God told me to put him to death. But you're going to keep your promise because you always do. After all, you gave me a son in my old age. I don't know. You're probably just going to raise him from the dead or something. See that? That's an amazing, an amazing conclusion of Abraham. And it was born out of keeping one's perspective and faith in the living God and his reliability and his trustworthiness. Now listen, tonight, 
you're going to come. Some of you young people are having questions in your lives about, is God reliable? Is the Bible everything that it says it is? Uh, uh, does, uh, are we meeting the right way? Uh, are there other things to do? And you're going to have these questions pummeled at you in the collegiate world. I know. I was in the collegiate world. They beat you to death with these questions and these doubts. And they're going to bring God in a bad light and they're going to say, this is not, this is sort of a made up fictionized version of something your emotions needed to allow you to survive the rigors of life and its existence. And I want you to know that that's the lie. The truth is, is that God is actually who He says He is and that He is reliable and faithful. And it says this in the New and Old Testament, men may mean it for evil, but God means it for good. God changes it for good. And that's what happened. It seems like it's going to go south, but God changes it so that the good comes out. That's the nature of who He is. Every good and perfect gift is, comes down from the Father of lights. That's your Father in heaven. He doesn't give bad gifts. Any of you ever give a bad Christmas gift? You know, you give a Christmas gift and the person goes, oh, how nice, and they don't love it at all. You slave to find it, they don't care. Huh? Ever happened to anybody here? God never has that problem. He doesn't go, oh, I wish I would have got the blue one. He doesn't do that. God's gifts are just perfect from the word go. And what happens is Satan wants you to believe the worst about God every time, all the time, if he can get you to do that. That's what the nature of sin is about. It constantly doubts God. That's why faith was such a big thing, where he, Abraham put his faith in the heart of God that he saw when he, when he gave him Isaac. So much so that it would flavor how he interpreted God's command. You're just going to do something else, like raise him from the dead then, so let's go. No wonder he could. I don't think I could do that. Could you? I would just be a melted piece of leaf lettuce on the floor. All right, so now let's look at what happened. Verse 9. They came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar. It wasn't the first time Isaac recognized the protocol. And then built an altar there where he placed the wood in order. And now who, notice who's doing all the work. Abraham, he's, putting the, he's building the altar. He's placing the wood. He puts Isaac like, like God the Father, right? See it? And he puts Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. Oh, that sounds just like the father. He has his son at the hands of Roman uh, the government uh, uh, place him on a cross that God had made through, the, through his creation of trees and, and vegetation and all that kind of stuff. He did that. And then Abraham stretches out his knife. Can you imagine the scene? We've got the altar here. And there's that boy, motionless, strapped down to the altar, probably looking at his father the whole time. Can you imagine if that boy was looking at you and you've got this knife and you, well, you just look like you're crazy. You know, like that. And I, and I, think, he was, I think he was willing to go through with it. How do I know that? Because the angel of the Lord called out to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, step away from the car. Put your hands on the hood. Well, that's a loose interpretation from the Hebrew, but that's what the idea is. Look at what he says. And the angel of the Lord called him from heaven. Here am I. Here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad. Boy, I tell me something. Let me, let me tell you. All you had to say was, A. And I dropped the knife and say, yes. Did you need something? Absolutely. What should we do now? Oh, let me let him loose. No, no, no. He had to be instructed. You put the knife down. I know that you fear God since you have not withheld. And notice he says it again, just like at the beginning. Your son, your only son. Just like it's for me. And I will not withhold my only son 
You didn't withhold your only son from me. And he goes like this. And Abraham, uh, uh, then Abraham lifted his eyes. This is the beauty. And his eyes caught the, uh, the shadow, the form of a ram in the thicket, caught by its horns. I don't know what you think, and I'm not a shepherd, but ram's horns are their chief weapon, isn't it? I think it's kind of unusual for a ram to get itself in a position where its chief weapon is actually neutralized, right? It's as if the ram was planted. Yes! That's exactly what happened. The ram was planted like Jesus Christ was purposely introduced into the human race. And Jesus Christ was purposely born at the right time in the right way where, this, where the Roman government would be the instrument of execution and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees would be involved in the trial. Yes, it was all planned. Yes, it was right there. And notice at the very hour when you and I would be put to death, suddenly there's a swap. And now, the substitute takes my place. That's the beauty of this. Can I, uh, while we're on this subject, you ever think about Barabbas? You know Barabbas. He was the third thief to die that day. He was supposed to be dead. I'll see if I can explain it. In the city of Jerusalem today, on the northern Temple Mount, there's a place called the Lithostratus. You should go there. <laughs> and the Lithostratus it's the last remaining architectural structure of Antonio's fortress. When you walk down the street, you only see a little bit of a rim of an arch on the streetway. That's all that's there. But you go into the Lithostratus and you go down about four stories. When you get down to the fourth story, you are at approximately 110, 120 A.D., at Hadrian's time. Now, it is felt, due to other excavation that the construction of the prison block, which is where you are in the heart of, in the bowels of the Antonio Fortress, was very similar to the time of Christ. And when you walk in, it's very low ceilings, archways, and they actually had the cell blocks where the prisoner would be held. You, you could go there today. I'll take you there if you want to. All right. And then there's this trough that goes right down there where the water would flow. And as you walk along, you come across this huge piece of granite, a big rock on the, on the floor of this, this, this cell block. And there's drawings on it. You know what it's called? It's called the King's Game. You Google the title King's Game and it'll tell you that that's what the, the Roman guards would play, a game. And whichever guard lost their particular round, their prisoner would die next. Okay. And when you're down at that level, all of a sudden you realize, wow, this is not a fairy tale. And we don't believe it's a fairy tale, but, but you know, we've heard it all of our lives, but now all of a sudden it has shape and form and reality, and you go, wow, I wonder if that happened to the Lord. Now, if you were Barabbas, and you were in a cell block, and Jesus was the guy upstairs, you would hear things like this, crucify, crucify think he's talking about you, right? If you were Barabbas and you would, you would hear, away with him, away with him. No man will be this friend of Caesar if you're a friend of this man. You could hear that. You're thinking, that's me. I'm dead. I'm gone, right? Can you imagine if, if, the, if they brought the Lord Jesus down because that was the pathway to get out on the street where they carry the cross 
that you could hear the chains and, and, and dang, or gangling or, or making noise as they jingled and the steady march of the Roman soldiers as they bring this prisoner down. And, and, and you're Barabbas in your cell block and you're thinking, okay, they're coming to get me. They're coming to get me. And you're bracing yourself as they move slowly by your cell block and you catch the eye of the Son of God as He walks by. See, I believe the story of Barabbas is in the entire account of the book of Luke and several authors for the sole purpose to remind you and I, don't miss what's happening. There's a lot of drama. You've got people lying and you've got people being so happy to see Jesus to do a miracle. You've got people making cutting deals for 30 pieces of silver. You've got beatings. You've got ripping out of beards. You've got, you've got mockery uh, crowns and, and scourgings. And it's a lot of drama and activity and blood and sweat. And then there's this little sort of thing where one's life is exchanged for the other. I think the Spirit of God put that there like He did this story to show you one thing. Never forget what's happening. Your lives are being exchanged. The doom to death for the King of Kings. Isn't that precious? I believe that's what's going on. Now, let's go back to our discussion here about worship. What can we learn about worship from this? Notice it was volunteer. Here am I. Worship is something that's spontaneous. It's spontaneously done. We're going to use this passage to illustrate these concepts because he said, the lad and I will go and worship and we'll come back. It's voluntary. Notice this. It's lovingly. How is that? Well, uh, the idea of the burnt offering, although it's not as developed as it was in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, the idea is it's deep devotion. No matter where you go in the Bible, it indicates deep devotion. In the book of Leviticus, It was the one sacrifice that was the one that was totally consumed upon the altar. It was not allowed to to have anything shared by anyone else. It was totally to be burnt to a crisp. You had to give up a bull. A bull is your prized animal to make more herd, right? This is is deep devotion. I think that's that's what's being indicated, that it's lovingly done, deep devotion of soul, right? Notice this, it's sacrificially taking now your son, your only son whom you love, that which is very precious. There's a, there's a, a, a prophet of God that wrote the book of, of course, Malachi. And in Malachi, he tells the priest, he says, you've treated the things of God with contempt, and yet you say, what? That's a common Hebrew thing. What? What are you talking about? Tell me how we've treated you with contempt. Because you bring that which is lame and that which is blind and that which is ill and you bring it and offer it to me. You take it to your governor. Will he like it? I don't think so. You know what he's saying? He's saying you, what you're doing is you're offering priests, you're offering things to me that are your disposables that you didn't want anyway. You didn't bring me that which is more precious, that which is, means something to you. It, it, that's what worship does. It takes that which means something to you and you give it to someone else. Do you remember? Even in the, in the thoughts of the Lord Jesus about the widow's might, he's just sitting around with his boys. This is in the last Passion Week of Christ. They're sitting around with his boys and they're looking around. I think they had a busy day. They're taking a break, you know. They're around the Temple Mount and everybody's coming up and they're dropping money into the treasury box. Jing, 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 jing. And I can just see this guy come up. Guy opens his robe. It sounds like a rain, a storm of coins. And then this little woman can barely walk. She comes up 
And she just, uh, and it goes, tingle, 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 tingle. And the Lord Jesus, don't you love him? He says, fellas, I'm telling you, she put in more than anybody else today. <laughs> Judas, the Iscariot, probably is going, oh. <laughs> right? You know, God is very sensitive to the sacrifice you make. Right? He even noted it here. Take now your son. Said it twice even, right? Notice this. It's personal. Worship is something that's done personally. I want you to know that if you think that we can come together as an assembly, say this Sunday, and we'll remember the Lord and we'll worship the Lord as a collective group, but we've not worshipped the Lord privately, we won't have any collective worship. Do you understand that? That's how it happens. It doesn't happen another way. It's personal. It's voluntary. It's loving. It's sacrificial. It's personal. And listen, if you want these slides, I'm happy to give them to you. Let's go on to the next one. It's persistent, right? Third day off, he saw the place. He didn't back down. He didn't get lost in the traffic. He didn't, he didn't feel like he was overwhelmed from the journey on that camel and, and all of the, the things that would go along with that. He was, uh, he was reliantly, what do I mean by that? We will go. We'll worship and come back to you. Notice it's predicated. It's the only word I could come up with. with Faith. By faith. And that's what I'm referencing here. Notice this. It was perseveringly. Abraham, he took the wood. Where, where is the lamb? God will provide. Even in the moment when the hard questions were asked, Abraham persisted in worship. This is what we do, right? This is the model, the template that we have. Sacrificial, lovingly, persistently. We do it in faith or reliantly. Sorry about that. I couldn't come up with another word. We do it perseveringly. We, 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 we go through those moments. And many times we have trials that lay that wipe you out. And you say, oh, God, I don't feel like worshiping you today. That's the point I'm making. It's done by a heart of faith that then allows you to persevere during these, during these moments of hard questions. That's what you do. David, he'd so many times, he had questions about the wicked and he was all upset and he was losing his temper and he's losing his way. And the psalmist says he went to the temple and learned what their end was. And what does a psalm end in? It ends in worshiping God. All right. And he was committedly. What did he do? He took his bound him. Oh, I don't think I could do that. Stretched out his hand. I have, uh, I have several sons. I have a 21-year-old. I have a a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, and then there's three more. How would, I, how, would I, how would I do that? I think of my little William. He's 11 now. I think Isaac would have been older. You know, that kid is so precious to me. We, we love baseball. We throw the ball. He's got a great sense of humor. He leads in the assembly. He worships God as a, as a corporate body. He shares. He prays. He's got the biggest heart ever. He said to Janet one day, Mama, what can I get you for your birth, or for Mother's Day? And Janet says, oh, I'd like some perfume. He goes, Mama, what would I get you for your birthday that can become from our basement? Right? The guy's an economic genius. Right? See that? How can I, how can I have him watch me as I raise this knife? Oh, I don't think I could do that. You see that? And if it's hard for me, and yet God was committed to the, oh, amazing. This is what we do. We're committed. 
We're committed to this idea of worshiping God. What other things do we learn? It involves some trial. You did not know, I know. Listen, that's what worship does because what you do is when you lower yourself and thereby elevate God, what you're doing is sometimes it's, it, you're, you're really sort of testing, in a sense, the, the direction and the purity of your own heart. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes when you come, when I have come to the breaking of bread meeting, and I'm, I, 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 I find that my heart is not ready, and I find it's impure, I find there's been uh, coveting and, and lust, or there's been, uh, been pride and, or bitterness. I'll never forget, and this is to my wife's credit, she said, you know, Steve, I love you so much, but I just think you struggle from bitterness. I don't either. Of course you do. Just go look in the mirror. She didn't say that part, but that's exactly. Sometimes that's what happens when we bring worship because we can't bring it in a way in which there is tainted uh, uh, falseness to it. The, the Lord taught that on the on the on the t- uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. If you bring your gift before the Lord and you know that someone has something to give, first go leave your gift. I like purity in what is done. So there's a test now. This conceptually, he look at the the teaching of substitution lifted his eyes. Oh, that we would lift our eyes. And we would see more than what's there. We would see the substitute of one for the other, of the, of the innocent taking the place of the guilty. Do you see all these concepts, how they're woven into the text? Respectfully, I didn't read it, but it says, Abraham called the place Jehovah Jireh, meaning that the Lord will provide. He had great respect to God for it. He understood God's hand. He understood God's plan. He understood God's way. And he was all about, he was, he was throwing himself on this particular path of existence. And of course, it's done, worship is done in a manner where there's approvingly. He says, the angel of the Lord said, blessing, I will bless you. God gives back. Isn't that something? So many times I hear people say to me when they are too tired to go to prayer meeting, you know, do you ever have that feeling? Oh, I've had such a terrible day. I'm too tired to go to prayer meeting. Let me tell you this way. You've had such a terrible day, you cannot afford not to go to prayer meeting. Okay? That's exactly how it works. Oh, I'm too tired today. I've, I've had such a hard week. I think I need a little bit more sleep. I'm going to stay home and we're going to have coffee together at our breakfast table. Listen, I, 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 I don't love coffee, but I love tea. My wife loves coffee. So we get together. We have... But that is not an acceptable pattern, is it? No, no, no. I want to have the Lord's approval on what I'm doing. I want that extra blessing. He gives back to you when you give to Him. That's what's happening. Abraham gave his son. The angel of the Lord said, I will bless you back. Don't you love that? You can't outgive God. We know that's a cliche, right? But we think... That, that means that, that if I give God this much, God will match it, kind of like a 401k plan, you know, a corporate plan for retirement. Let me, tell you, let me tell you how it really works. You give God this much, and he gives everything over there. You see, there is no comparison, right? That's how it's working here. So many things to consider, and we'll need to stop there as our time is gone. So our goal this weekend is to look at worship. And we just started tonight by looking at the classic passage in the Old Testament on worship just to pull out some of these things and also to allow us to peer into the heart of God. That means the most to me. But more importantly, 
It means that we are going to take a posture before God which lowers ourselves, elevating God. And you'll see by that movement alone, and you'll see more imagery to this in the New Testament when we talk about that tomorrow morning. And when we do so, it's not just something that we do by putting coins into the basket. No, it involves the whole being. It involves everything about you. Your mind, your will, your emotions, your body, your soul, your spirit. It involves all the tripartite elements of the human dimension. It involves uh, 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 the loving, sacrificial uh, manner, the respect, perseverance, committedness to it all. And, and we're putting God, human beings for goodness sake, putting God in His rightful place Who else is going to do that? Jesus said it this way. If you don't speak, the rocks will cry out. All of creation awaits that day when He will be in His rightful place and we will all sing together. We'll all pronounce His great glory and His place. God is giving us the privilege to start early. I love getting a head start. That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about worship. Father, we want to thank you this evening as we come to uh, just meditate for a few minutes in the Word of God. Oh, Father, I am so afraid that the, the human vessel will be in your way and the Spirit of God would be unable to have his delightful activity. I simply ask you to take me out of the way and allow your Spirit, Father, to teach us tonight and tomorrow and and all the other times where we're not together. Just teach us and draw us together. I know you're looking for those who worship you in spirit and truth. We want to be the ones you find. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.